0: Don't hold
1: radio. Welcome to Open Minds Radio with Alejandro Rojas. Open Minds Radio is your UFO news authority, presenting evidence and the latest news regarding the UFO phenomenon. Here's your host, Alejandro Rojas.
2: Hello, my friends, and welcome to Open Minds Radio, your UFO News Authority, this is Alejandro Rojas and we have another wonderful show today. Our guest is Morgan Beal, who is the Director of Technology for MUFON. I, uh, you know, put up there MUFON R&D, Research and Development. What could MUFON be building? Have they been able to glean enough information from their files on UFOs to create an extraterrestrial craft or perhaps even clone an alien? Not quite yet, but they're building a really cool mobile app for your phone. It's going to be out for the iPhone very soon and then other phones uh, soon thereafter. And we have Morgan here to tell us all about it. He is also the state director for uh, Southwestern Florida. And he is a Star Team member, so he's part of that elite team that goes and investigates UFO sightings. So he's going to be talking to us about all of that in just a moment. But first, this is always a very exciting part of the show. We have a gentleman by the name of Jason McClellan here. He follows the news because on OpenMinds.tv we put up the news on a regular basis to keep you up to speed on what is happening in the UFO world. And we have Jason here to bring us uh, a little bit of that information. Jason, are you there? Alejandro,
1: I am here. How are you, my friend? Good, good. How are you? Excellent, sir. Let's get started with news. Hello, everyone. This is your Open Minds News Brief for Monday, October tenth, two 2011. Well, we'll start off with a story about designs for a telescope um, that will search for extraterrestrial life. And these designs have just been approved. Researchers from Oxford and Durham Universities designed the European Extremely Large Telescope, also called the E-ELT, which will reportedly be the largest instrument of its kind ever built. According to the telegraph, the E-ELT will be sensitive enough to take images of previously unseen objects, such as cold stars and more planets, and learn more about their atmospheres, what they are made of, and whether they could support life. The European Extremely Large Telescope would operate under the European Southern Observatory, also known as the ESO, at a site in Chile. The decision of whether or not to begin construction on the EELT will be decided on by the ESO by the end of this year. And if approval is given to construct the EELT, it will be ten, tens of times more sensitive than any other visible light-sensing telescope on Earth. Tens of times? Yes, tens of times.
2: Wow. They should be careful to call it the extremely large because there will be a bigger one that will come
1: along and then it will be the kind of big telescope. I, I'm sure they won't run out of things to say. You can always go, go larger. The medium size, the so-so telescope. Yeah. But you, order. you, my friend, are the king of coming up with with additional superlatives. I don't know. You're you're very good. At, it's marketing. Yes. You talk about the the kajillions of of planets, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I I enjoy the words you come up with.
2: If what you have bigger and better is one or two times better than what the competition has, the marketing rule is you, or at least my marketing rule, is you multiply that by a zillion or a zillion trillion so that you say, what we have here, just like our radio show, is two zillion trillion times better than any other show on on, uh, the internet. Exciting, isn't
1: it? Makes you want to listen. What was that exact figure? Two zillion trillion. I don't know where you got that number, but I like it. Let's go with it. Well, I have another news story here about NASA, and they recently completed testing on a partially inflatable habitat that could be used on future missions to the moon, Mars, or deeper into space. Now, I'm going to describe this here a little bit, and... It sounds really cool, and I think I want one. But this new Habitat is yet another example of how NASA continues to make advancements in their effort to explore the galaxy and search for extraterrestrial life. The Habitat Demonstration Unit, also known as the HDU, was tested in the Arizona desert, which provided a somewhat Mars-like atmosphere. And Alejandro, you and I know that all too well. We live right in the middle of it. It's Mm -hmm. it's very Mars-like here. And according to MIT's technology review... Quote, the current prototype housing unit has a hard cylindrical shell, contains four rooms, two outside additions for dust mitigation and hygiene, and an inflatable component that adds a second level for sleeping and relaxing. This thing sounds more luxurious than my house. Technology Review explains that the unit could be adapted for use on the moon, Mars, an asteroid, or even used as a free-flying space habitat. Watch out, Robert Bigelow. That sounds like that's kind of infringing on uh, Bigelow's territory there, Bigelow Aerospace, with their inflatable habitats up in space. But the results gathered from the unit's testing were presented last week at the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics Space 2011 Conference in Long Beach, California. Cool. Very cool. And the pictures are cool. Looks like this sort of... Mobile home, but much cooler looking than a mobile home. And they've even got these compartments where the little moon buggies can pull up and attach so the people from the moon buggy can get back into their little unit. But that's cool, making developments there. And Alejandro, we talk about it every week. I think we are getting closer and closer to another manned moon mission or a Mars mission or depending on who you talk to. Our first moon mission, sorry, I had to throw that in there, Alejandro. Just in case some people think we have never been to the moon, and that is debatable. In other news, we have a story about, oh, let's see, scientists uh, speculate that ET civilizations are rare. And I don't know about this one, Alejandro. Tell me what you think. But the 62nd International Astronautical Convention, there seems to be a lot of astronautical conventions going on lately, but this is the 62nd International Astronautical Convention that took place recently um, at the International Convention Center in Cape Town, South Africa. SETI League Executive Director Emeritus Paul Schuch participated in the convention and spoke about searching for radio signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. In doing so, the topic of the WOW signal came up. And for those of you who don't know, the WOW signal was a radio signal detected by Dr. Jeremy Amon on August 15, 1977 with Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope. The signal, named after Amon's reaction, was, quote, so strong that it catapulted the Big Ear's recording device off the chart, end quote. And that's according to the Big Ear's website. The WOW signal has never been detected again. She described it as, quote, one of those things that goes bump in the night, and then is gone forever. The Cape Times explains that the signal, quote, bore all the hallmarks at the time of its detection of having a non-Earth origin, end quote. But after 34 years of silence, Schuch, uh speculates that intelligent life is probably rare in the universe. At the conference, he explained, quote, when SETI science first started in the early 1960s, we optimistically assumed this would be a short-duration project and show immediate success. It's taken us this half, half a century to come to the conclusion that it's not going to be so easy. Civilizations are more rare, more elusive, End quote. And this, of course, is based purely on the lack of detected radio signals and makes a huge assumption that all extraterrestrial civilizations are out there broadcasting radio signals that we can pick up.
2: Well, and it all depends on this we because we meaning this person and their buddies because there were a lot of people even in the SETI community who knew it would be a long time and a difficult task. And, of course, in the general public of of scientists, there are a lot of people who felt like uh, it wasn't worth the effort because even if there were extraterrestrials out there, like an article we wrote not too long ago with the NSA uh, scientists who were talking about this, that there are so many technologies that we don't understand that most likely would be used by another more advanced civilization that uh, just listening to wavelengths that we know about might not ever be
1: fruitful. Right, and I don't know, we should probably clarify, and I, I assume there's a difference here, but just because something is called SETI doesn't mean they're all related. I mean, SETI... Just the general term is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And this gentleman in particular um, is from the SETI League, and I'm assuming that's different than the uh, SETI Institute. Yeah. So, so you're right. The we, um, you know, they, th- there were different we's with different, differing opinions. Alejandro, I know you're going to love me for this, Because I'm being consistent here again, and I've got another fireball UFO story for you. There's a lot of them. Watch out for those fireballs. Well, this one, uh, a witness watched a fireball UFO burn its way across the sky above Sandusky, Ohio, on the night of Tuesday, October 4th. Three men witnessed the burning object, including Robert Lowry, a 7-Eleven clerk, who saw the UFO when he was carrying cardboard boxes to the store's dumpster. Lowry was hesitant to tell anyone about the event because of that horrible stigma attached to UFOs. He explained to the Sandusky Register, quote, That's one of those things. If there's nobody else around to see it, you don't go around talking about it. People will think you're crazy, end quote. Two other men who were two blocks away from the 7-Eleven also witnessed the object in the sky. Daniel Harps explained, quote, I looked up and this huge fireball went right over us. It was on fire and had a long streaming tail, end quote. Harp's friend, Monty Freer, added, quote, All I can tell you is it was a UFO, end quote. Harp's later came into the 7-Eleven where Lowry works and asked the clerk if he had seen the fireball UFO. The two men shared their experiences and agreed the object moved from the southwest to the northeast, and disappeared somewhere over Lake Erie after approximately four seconds. According to the Sandusky Register, the FAA didn't detect anything unusual on radar that night. Local astronomers say the object was probably a meteor, but Lowry told the Sandusky Register, quote, I've seen a lot of strange things in my life, but this was a chart topper. But the UFO has now been identified, according to the Sandusky Register, uh Bellevue Astronomer and Huron Valley Astronomer Group president, Paul Shulden, claims the object was something called a, a uh I just looked up how to pronounce this, Alejandro, and I don't remember. It's Give it a, it's your a, best a, shot. It's a bolide. That's how it's pronounced. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, a bolide. bolide and a I bolide a bolide is a is a bright meteor that often explodes. And I think you've seen a few of these, Alejandro, haven't you? Uh no. Something similar. Kind of. Kind of. But that's what this this individual, this astronomer, says, is what uh, people saw. But we'll just have to take his word for it. Well,
2: it does sound sort of like a, an astronomical. It
1: really thing. does, absolutely, and with with just a period of, in the sky of four seconds, mm-hmm. this kind of bursting and disappearing. Absolutely. I mean,
2: driving out to the desert, like I've talked about uh, often, I see things that are more amazing than it, what I had seen before, these incredible meteorites. And, of course, the one a few weeks ago was, that was a chart topper. That was absolutely incredible. But, you know, I'm quite certain it was a meteor, just gigantic, breaking up in the sky.
1: Where are your pictures to prove it? Well,
2: it was only a few seconds. I have no proof.
1: Shame. For Shame. No, I'm jealous you got to see that because that sounded like quite an event, and and you're right. This this does most likely sound like some sort of natural phenomena, so we'll let them have that one. But Alejandro, I've got another UFO sighting here, and this one's kind of fun. I like this one. So um, dozens of witnesses reported strange lights flying in a V formation above Kansas City, Missouri. According to Fox 4 News in Kansas City, a witness recorded the mysterious lights with a cell phone on the night of Monday, October 3rd, but other reports indicate that lights have been seen on multiple nights. According to Margie Kay, Assistant State Director for MUFON, that's the Mutual UFO Network, witnesses saw the lights on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of last week. She explains that the reports are of, quote, very large craft hovering in different areas and that's quite unusual because normal airplanes do not have that behavior. Helicopters do, but these are not described as helicopters. End quote. Fox 4 News states that Kay contacted local airports looking for help identifying any of the 82 UFO sightings reported. The airport helped her determine that some of the sightings could be explained by stunt planes that were in the air at the time. Further evidence suggests that, uh, that, air, that stunt plane theory could be true. Uh, Fox 4 News reported on October 7th that KC Flight, a civilian air formation team, came forward to claim responsibility for the lights in the sky. Pilot Philip Lamb explained that he and his eight-man team, quote, practices at night because the city lights illuminate the planes, end quote. He further explained that, quote, during their flight, the plane's wings are typically three feet apart and are stacked approximately three to four feet above or below each other, causing the planes to appear like a single object from the ground, end quote. If the lights that were observed by at least 82 people were the result of city lights illuminating these stunt planes, it would seem logical to assume that the other airplanes in the sky um, are also illuminated by city lights, but uh, their airplanes don't seem to have caused the buzz generated by the mysterious lights in the sky last week. Additionally, several witnesses reported seeing the lights hover Then shooting off quickly, as Kay previously stated, that isn't normal behavior for airplanes. Now, but
2: they had to have had lights on. I mean, it couldn't have been, I think, the reflections. They would have to have some sort of light on.
1: I would think so. That's FAA regulations. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a tough one. But also, other airplanes in the night are going to have lights on and... But they're not going to be flying in formation,
2: like these guys supposedly
1: were, right? They were stunt pilots. Correct. But if you look at the the, the photos, and, and I think there's video, maybe um, just photo. But each of the individual lights is quite bright. You know, mm-hmm. certainly brighter than than you would you expect just a single airplane to be, with their lights and paired with illumination from city lights. I mean, they're they're abnormally bright. They could just be these planes. They could be because it, it, they're illuminated more because they're flying at a lower altitude. I don't know. But
2: yeah, I don't think that it makes sense that illumination from city
1: lights on planes, that's kind of silly. in the night? I agree. I mean, I um, unless, unless, they're, unless they're flying like right above the street and yeah. you've got the street lights. But, but
2: I, I could see, you know, because I've been fooled with a plane that comes straight at you like we talked about. But I don't know. This is a tough one because if you have these Planes in formation coming straight at you; these lights would look really bright, but they would probably look um, well if they were at a, uh, a height. They might look like a V, correct? But then turning, if they're coming right at you, they'll just look like they're hovering, um, and then when they turn, it could look like they shoot off. But when they turn, I mean, do they turn in formation?
1: Yeah, I, I imagine so. I mean, that's what that's what these stunt planes do. They they fly really in really tight formation, and then all move at the same time. So they would they move weird. in unison. It looks weird. Um, I don't know. I haven't... Recently haven't seen it at night. So. What someone needs to do
2: is go out and film them practicing. Exactly.
1: So then they can compare it. Exactly. I will say that in just a brief search, I couldn't find this, this uh, flight company mm-hmm. online anyway, this KC Flight. I did find a company called KC Flight, but it was in a different state, and this KC Flight is supposedly in that same state. So, mm. so I, I don't know about them. I don't know. You know, I tried to find some, some video or photo of them doing their stunts, but I couldn't find any. So, yeah, we just have this, this picture to work with, and, and you know, you the witness testimony. But You make a good point with perspective. Sometimes planes coming at you, or if they're in form- formation and they're making this big turn in the sky, depending on what angle they're at, it could look like they're hovering for a little while, anyway, but they are airplanes; they have to keep moving. Yeah. So the the description of of hovering, and then shooting off quickly, doesn't really fit with the airplanes. So. That's strange. It's very strange. Although Alejandro, I can
2: I can still see it personally.
1: I mean, if they're coming
2: at you for like five minutes, that's a long time.
1: Exactly. And they would.
2: And smaller planes travel so slow. Comparatively.
1: Well, and also if if they're in an, in a maneuver where they. Start climbing, and then you know, from far away, it looks like they're just sitting there. Yeah. And then they go into a dive. Then it's going to look like they're shooting off.
2: And if they're really flying at night, they're going to look weird, no doubt. They're going to be cool looking. I mean, they'll be fun to watch because they would look different, just like you know, any. Well,
1: you've got this bizarre illuminated V kind of exactly doing weird things in the sky. Yeah. So anyway, that's that. And Alejandro, that is it for the news. Be sure to check out. All of these stories and so many more at OpenMinds.tv, your source for UFO-related news. I'm Jason McClellan, your Open Minds news correspondent, and you've been briefed. Alejandro, I hope you mentioned the article you just put up today, because I didn't mention that. I wanted to save that for you.
2: All right. Yeah, I'll talk about that. And remember, we have a lot more news. There's uh, Phoenix. There was another UFO sighting. Uh, this UFO field we've talked about is up to some more strangeness. Uh, There are pilots in Moscow who saw UFOs. Um, So there's a lot more UFO news on our website. If you go to openminds.tv and go to the news section, you'll see all the headlines and all of the really cool UFO news that's going on out there. As far as our articles, which we put up on a regular basis as well, we've got some good stuff there. Uh, We do have a story on a UFO sighting by a Mexican president, Louise Echeverria. Echeverria? Antonio wrote this story. And it's very interesting. Uh, this guy in the 70s or possibly late 60s, there's a little bit of controversy on the date, but probably 1968 because there was a, a blackout. And he said he had this sighting during a blackout. But it's kind of funny because he was at a stately affair. And, you know, people started talking about UFOs and they were kind of dismissive and making fun. And he... He piped up and says, well, I saw a UFO. And he tells him a story about how him and his wife and a family friend who was actually a famous dancer had seen a UFO during a blackout, and he felt that the UFO was responsible for the blackout. So uh, as far as Antonio knows, this story hasn't been told in English. So it's a really interesting story that you can find on our website. Also, as Jason mentioned, I have a new story up on... The August 2011 UFO wave. You may remember that there was a lot of news when Clifford Cliff had told people that uh, sightings had doubled in August. And so I ran some stats and made some graphs to figure that out. Sure enough, just like he said, you know, they usually get 500 sightings a month. They got over 1,000 in August. So I tried to find out where that happened and uh, to figure out, you know, what might have happened. Was this a mistake in reporting It doesn't look like it, actually. I looked through. It looks like these are all valid. Uh, There was an increase. It doesn't look like any one state in particular had uh, an unusual amount to account for this, meaning that it wasn't one mass sighting in one state. Connecticut, I found, had a lot of sightings more than usual. They only usually have four or five, but they had 38 reported in August. So that's a lot. That's 34 more than usual, and, you know, it's it's, – uh, six zillion times more than they usually get. <laughs> That's uh, multiplying more than are. But anyway, uh, they had a lot of sightings. That still doesn't account for how they had 500 more sightings at, uh, at MUFON than they normally have. And really, when you look at the state figures, it seems like the sightings were scattered across the country as normal. The places that get a lot of sightings had a lot of sightings. So it's hard to say why, but you can see this breakdown and these graphs where I thoroughly analyzed the shapes of the UFOs that were being seen uh, in August. So you can take a look at that and uh, see for yourself. Now, I'm also going to write some more stories this week because I found some other really interesting information as far as hot spots when it comes to UFO sightings. And this is going to be great. So stay tuned to OpenMinds.tv for more on that. However, now let us go ahead and get on the line. Morgan Bial, like I said, he is the Director of Technology for MUFON, and he has some exciting news on advanced technology that MUFON is going to be utilizing, and hopefully this is going to help them in collecting their sighting reports as well. I am very excited to have the technology director for MUFON MUFON R&D, Morgan Beal, on the phone. Morgan, are you there?
3: Yes, I am. Hello, Alejandro.
2: Hello. It's good to talk to you. Absolutely. Yeah, what a cool job. Is that cool if I added the R&D? Because that's that's research and (laughs) development kind of exciting. Hell Yeah. (laughs) Probably not as exciting as it sounds, though, huh? Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Makes it sound a little bit more uh, fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You probably don't have a secret lab or anything.
3: No, but I'm thinking of building one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That would be cool, an underground lab. So, Sweet, how long have you been doing this?
3: Well, I mean, I've been interested in the phenomenon for about, I guess, seriously for about, I'd say, about eight years.
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. and I, I I decided about two and a half years to, two and a half years ago to get uh, seriously involved with MUFON, and um, because of the values and the scientific methods, and you know I read through their their um, documentation and some of their um, <clears throat> um, you know forms and whatnot that they that they put forth when they do some of these cases, I kind of uh, like that. So I got heavily involved, became an investigator here in Southwest Florida. And, uh, became very busy very quickly because as you know, Florida's like, I guess one of those hot spots, and <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, before I knew it, I had, you know, five, six cases at a time in some cases. So it's, uh, I got a lot of practice doing that. Uh, I became the, uh, state section director for Southwest Florida and, uh, began to, uh, make good relationships with people within the community here in Florida and the investigators here. And, um, you know, and just kept going from there. I kept, you know, wanting to get more involved and I am now where I am now. I started out with the uh, star team project pretty early on because of my background. I, I do, um, I'm an industrial hygiene consultant, uh, during the day. And so I deal a lot with, uh, Hazardous materials testing, uh, ground te- water testing, asbestos, mold—you know, all that kind of fun stuff—and um, so I kind of utilized my day job, I guess, uh, my my uh, <clears throat> experience there and in MoveOn. So it became very relevant to the Star Team's function. So I, I became heavily involved in the first SIP project and. And then, um, the new, uh, star team that, that reopened and, uh, reorganized and now I'm part of that and, uh, and just moved up from there and kept getting involved in some really neat projects that we're working on and like, like redeveloping the website, uh, you know, creating an app for MoveOn, and, and also doing some, uh, technical papers for MoveOn. I helped, uh, create the, um, the new, um, formal report form there's two of them that we that we put together recently about just be prior to the symposium and we're going to start actually publishing
2: those so um you know along those lines so cool (laughs) busy busy (laughs) yeah i'm going to put you on the spot and ask a tough question just because i know it's on a a lot lot of the listeners minds um and it's great to have someone from the inside uh, answer these questions but as an sip member that was the project with uh Robert Bigelow, uh, that he was funding. How did you feel about that project? Because, of course, as you know, there's been some controversy around. That.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, we all know that, and we're I'm okay about talking about it. It's pretty open. Everybody knows there were mistakes made on several fronts, but it, it was a big project. It was a real. It was an experiment. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of money was involved, and um, a lot of uh, a lot of work. I mean, the, the the cases that I went on, I was know 18 hours straight i it was no joke um i wow. you know and i did a lot of serious work and you know again like most ufo cases and i only say that not to be cynical but most of the cases you know end up having a dead end where there's no evidence or you know it's just like most cases but then every now and then we got lucky and got really good intriguing cases um and so it's my my opinion about it is that I, you know i wish it could have been done better but it was It was a good experiment. It was a good start to, I mean, this has never really been done before other than like Project Blue Book or something where they actually put a lot of funding into something like this. And so I think both parties learned from it, and I think anything that came out of it, which is now what we have now, uh, is so much better. And uh, we're developing new things to create a better team atmosphere. Uh, You know, a, a lot of the big criticism was that the state, Directors didn't have any any involvement, and sometimes didn't know about cases, and and we rec- we corrected that now. It's exclusively involved with the right. state directors, and and now we're utilizing a, a team based approach to these cases, where the star team um, investigators are the most experienced, just by, you know, being selected uh, based off of their experience and know how but they manage the cases and they can utilize the entire state's resources to get the case done and they're from that state. So it's it's no different than having a normal case, it's just being structured differently so they get more help on a case that requires more resources. So
2: right. And so I mean there's a lot of
3: mm-hmm.
2: Did you see any ill intent or uh on any party during that project? Yourself. I, I
3: saw, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, the questions came up, and I saw stuff, but what I saw was more or less um, mistakes on both sides. Right. Just reckless, you know, not n- intentional. I wouldn't say they were, you know, there wasn't any malice or anything like that. No one was right. trying to, you know, do anything to anybody. I think it was just a lot of mistakes. You know, like on the Bigelow side, you had a few of these investigators that were literally hired um, to do work. You know, thought this was cool because this is the first time they've ever dealt with the UFO phenomenon. So they they were thinking X Files, cloak and dagger. You know, <laughs> ooh, this is you know it's it was more extravagant than it really was. <laughs> and yeah. And then on our side, you know, the kind of conflict where you're dealing with somebody who's never dealt with this the subject matter. But on a scientific side, you know, Bigelow had some really excellent, very intelligent people. I worked with some really nice guys in that in that outfit. But you know, again, it's just like in any organization, you'll get a few people that just don't belong there. So yeah, it's like in any big organization, um, you'll, you it just run into things like that a lot. And I think, I think it was a necessary step, and I think it, we both parties learned quite a bit from it. And I think the only good will
2: come out of it in the end. Yeah, I mean, with volunteer organizations, everybody wants to do the the right thing, and and we'll, we'll, you know have a they all have a similar goal. It's just, especially when you're limited in time and resources, figuring out how to do it is the hard part. And just because people uh, make mistakes or have differences, opinion doesn't necessarily mean that there's uh, any sort of, that's the thing. There's no time for a conspiracy. Everybody's too busy.
3: Exactly. And and that's the thing, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I and mean, we, you know, of course, we always have those cases where we have those guys show up and unmarked cars and conspiratorial stuff like that. I mean, that happens. But, in in the case of the star team and stuff like that, I think it was exactly what you said. It was, it was people making true and, and, and and honest mistakes. And, and, you know, you know, you have character difference, differences between people. Some people don't get along. It's going to happen. Uh, and especially under those conditions when you're doing these highly stressful, long-term, uh, investigations, right. You know, I'm, I'm so glad I was compensated for that because I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there was no way with the travel and and the amount of work that I had to do, I had to take off work, you know, things like that. And it it was, it was a real job. But, um, I, in my opinion, for me, it was definitely worth every minute because I learned so much about that world about investigating even more than I already did. You know, it it was, it was, I, I think it was a huge learning experience for our community as a whole. And, uh, you know, the big criticism, I guess, that comes out of it is nothing was ever shared. Well, there wasn't a whole lot to share scientifically, uh, but there's a lot of interesting stories. And we're hoping uh, with the new website, we're actually going to have a whole starting section
0: cool. where we're
3: going to actually be releasing old docs and new docs, you know, talking about cases, maybe uh, having a few interviews with our, our new radio kind of uh, we're doing like a podcast kind of deal. But, you know, and we'll start bringing that stuff out. And, and the kind of thing that people have criticized we really never had a venue to kind of talk about this stuff, you know. So it, now we're creating that and we're coming up with uh, new techniques, new ways to, to right. really information flow
2: coming out. Yeah, and people say that, you know, when I was in contact with Richard Lang, he gave us the material and we printed in our magazine even what he yeah. felt was the best cases. I mean, yeah. it's not like that information was hidden. Like you said, oh. there's just not necessarily – different places okay. or places to get it, it out a, there, yeah there just
3: wasn't a way or venue to do it correctly anywhere or, or in an organized fashion you know and just like the, the report i sent you there's no way i could fit that and they they didn't
2: <laughs> in, in the
3: journal i mean they only put four pages right and that's a 78 page report so it, it kind of you know kind of tells you the challenges that we have and, and we're trying to uh update everything you know technology hence my my uh my title. I'm, you know, we're trying to, we're really building a comprehensive website so people can use it as a resource to get to those types of big reports, and so people really get a grasp of the uh, magnitude of this phenomenon. And I think once they start to see how much work is being put into it, a lot of those criticisms won't go away, but they'll say, "Oh, okay, well, now I understand. Why didn't they tell us this before?"
2: <laughs>
3: so it's, I, I think it's, it's going to turn out in a positive way.
2: Yeah. Hey, are you uh, moving around or something? Uh, The phone Um, keeps kind of going in and out. It's quiet and louder, quiet and louder. It might be because I'm near
3: a a wireless system phone. Yeah, is that better?
2: Yeah, let's see.
3: I'll just hang out in the front of my
2: house. (laughs) Okay. Um, All right, great. Um, We'll talk about some more of the cases you've worked on uh, in just a minute. But I did want to mention uh talk about a couple other things. Uh one is that you got Volunteer of the Year at the symposium for twenty eleven. Congratulations on that.
3: <laughs> yeah. That was a that was a definite surprise. I know um Rob and uh and Patty, our office personnel for HQ, uh they kept their lips sealed. <laughs> they were looking at me funny during that time and I'm like, What's going on? And I'm not <laughs> expecting it at all and I'm sitting at their table. And, all of a sudden, I hear my name, and I turn around, and there's Clifford, you know, pointing at me. <laughs> and yeah. and I'm uh, so it was, I was pleasantly surprised. You know, I I'm kind of you know I kind of keep it in a bookshelf, sitting you know, on its side. I don't really put it. I'm like one of those people. that like, get it. If I get that award, I'll look at it and I'll be like, you know, I kind of feel pretentious if I put it on the wall. <laughs>
2: uh-huh.
3: But no, it it was an honor. I, I really enjoyed that event, um, and I was uh, glad to receive that reward. But you know, I have. So so much more to do, and uh, you know, it's it goes beyond volunteerism. It's it's for me anyway. Um, it's it's really a life mission for me to help out in, in this community, and I think I can have a real positive impact with Mufon, and uh, and I, we're already starting to do that. I compre- building a comprehensive team for web development, uh, all the way from getting a financier and uh, and a really good grassroots team to build a uh, an app for Mufon. And, you know, just going on beyond that. There's so many more projects that are that are ready to get started. I think a lot of this stuff
2: is really going to change our community and how we
3: re- interact with the uh, phenomenon. So um, I'm really looking forward to it.
2: Yeah, cool. Now, do you have much to do with the UFO stalker?
3: No. Um, it's another gentleman who built the stalker. We're actually going to be pulling him in to work with a few of these programmers. But um, we're going to be... Um, Enhancing some of that kind of coding and actually creating, we don't really have a name for it, but um, creating some analysis tools for the CMS, uh, utilizing the same type of what they call XML or, you know, external databases where we'll be able to actually make contour maps, extrapolate data, you know, make uh, bar graphs and, uh, you know, pie graph charts to, Kind of give people and I, you know, uh, the ability to analyze the, the data that Mupon's been collecting for so many years. So um, it, we're really looking forward to that. And, and part of that map tracker, you know, is is kind of a, was a start back in the day. And we're really hoping to enhance a lot of that when we start developing the website and uh, and the database. So a lot coming down the tubes. A lot being worked on right now. So,
2: cool. Yeah, that's exciting because the UFO stalker's is neat. I mean, the Twitter you can get the the sightings as they 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 come up. It's it's pretty cool. And what's really cool too, of course, is a project you have been working on, the MUFON mobile uh application, UFO Connect.
3: Yes, uh UFO Connect. Um man, that's been an adventure. <laughs> One of my uh, <laughs> Jeff. It's, uh my the two partners in it are putting this together is um we have uh, John Holtzclaw, who's a 3D animator, and uh, he, he he's done a lot of that type um, uh, material. And uh, and then um, Jeffrey Smith, who was kind of our CEO kind of type person, who fin- uh funded it and got it started business wise. I mean, unbelievable amount of stuff we had to do to, just to become a, 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 a an Apple developer. And um, and then we had to do all the trademarking and copyrights, and so we got all that done. So it's almost been nine months, and he kind of put it this way. He's like, it's
2: like giving giving birth
3: to a child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's nine months, and we're almost there. When does um, it launch? It's officially launching on November 1st. Right now it's in public data, which means you can probably go there and get it, um, but it's still under development. So, um, you know, just be mindful that the official date is for November 1st, and uh, we are really looking forward to that. just to give you an idea, I don't know if you want to know the, the intricacies of the app. Um, yeah, definitely. Real, yeah. It, it it It's not like your typical app. Um, it's very complex. Um, you know, like I said, it's taken months to design and program. And uh, it's actually three apps in one application. Uh, so we came up with these ideas with three different apps, and we went ahead and put them into one. Um, well, obviously, the first one is the MUFON mobile application, which basically emulates our online content, and we're still developing it, but online content and uh, other items like news. We use uh, a lot of the uh, uh, examiner.com, Roger Marsh's uh, news, so you can go right there and, and get the latest. And he, ta- he he extrapolates the top cases from our CMS database, and so that helps uh, generate a lot of drive to look at some of the cases that come into MUFON. So there's all sorts of things you can do on there. Visit the forums, shop on, move on that sort of thing. And that's the free portion of the app. Um, of course, you know, being a, a very comprehensive app, it costs quite a bit of money to build and getting programmers and the correct people to do it. So, but we do have to put the other portions on for sale. And then they're cheap. It's like $2.99, I think, and $4.99. And um, one of them is... A called UFO Search, and it's an and, NFC
2: and purchase. just so people know, that's just a one-time fee, right?
3: Yeah, one. time I mean, fee.
2: that's not don't monthly. Worry about
3: that. Maybe like five years down the line, when we make a giant upgrade, it'll be like a dollar.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's
3: like that's a long time from now. But um, no, the the, the yeah, it's a one-time deal. No, there's no monthly fees on these things. Um, the the UFO Search portion of the app actually utilizes our database just like the map does uh, the, um, the, the uh, soccer, mm-hmm. except it puts a little bit more, but you can look into geographically where all the reports are in the database. So it actually, you can go into a search, you generate your search on what you want to see, and it pops up on a map and it shows you all these pinpoints all over the map. It puts whatever you're looking for. And you can actually click on those and read the descriptions from the people and they're working on getting the files to work so you can actually see any visible either videos or uh, photos, to work in that app. So if there's cool. anything attached to those cases, you can click right on them and geographically locate them and say, oh, wow, that one's close to my my house, and you can actually click on it and, and read all about that that sighting that occurred in that area. Um, and, of course, the big one. Uh, this one was our kind of golden egg. We really love this part- portion of the app. Um, it's really fun to use. Um, it's called the Skywatch Alert. And it's a live alert system that allows anybody that has the app to, if they're out sky watching or if they see something, they can pull their phone out real quick, generate a report in less than 10 seconds, and wow. place an alert. And you can get as top, of, you know, you can make it very complex. You can write all the, a book about it on there or whatever, or you can take 10 seconds and literally put a report on there. And once it goes in there, whatever setting, anybody else on that network who has an app. Um, has a setting either for Florida, Texas, California, however they have it set up to get an alarm. And you can set up multiple alarms. They'll instantly uh, get that alarm coming across the network. So
2: as soon as it goes
3: onto the network, it goes onto everybody's phones that has that area set up to watch.
2: Oh, that's really so, cool. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's really neat. And you get and, and you know, it goes off, you hear the alarm, uh, you go in, you say, yeah, view it. And, and when you're not in the app, it'll give you a push notification. And so and you can hear the alarm too, and uh, and you can turn the alarm off. You can go to default, and it just gives you that little, you know, bling <laughs> uh, yeah. sound. But otherwise, you can pick through some pretty uh, uh, fun-to-use uh, alarms. <laughs> and um, But, yeah, you can essentially use it as a live alert system. So if you're just right. sitting around, I can't tell you how many times I've missed on a case that I looked at that I was assigned that was literally miles, a few miles away from me. Right. I could have gone outside and seen this thing if I were cool and um, this app, I think, will will help uh, facilitate kind of a uh, in your own hands disclosure. You go out, you see phenomenon, and you decide for yourself. You look at it, you see what other people are seeing, and that's what the whole thing is—to get the community involved, get out and look at this stuff when it's happening. So more witnesses, you know.
2: Yeah, that is so cool because I can see, and I can't wait till the first time this happens because I'm sure it will happen where someone will post something. And then you'll know you'll have other people look whether, uh, you know it's it's you know a large meteorite like you know I saw one out that big one in Phoenix recently, um, but if that would have dinged, then other people would have known to look up and and they would have seen it too, uh, or of course a real event. That just imagine if we had that back when the Phoenix Lights happened, there could have been even more witnesses.
3: Oh, absolutely. And, and and it goes, you know, like Texas, the event in Texas, the one that's happening right now and uh uh what was it? Um is it Missouri? I think it's Missouri, yeah. And um, you know, those those types of things can happen where the whole community will get these alarms from actual witnesses that are in their area or wherever they have it set up. And this is a worldwide app. So people all over the world can actually use
2: it. Awesome. And,
3: so it's 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 really it's going to be great. The first, I think, the first version, yes, the first version is going to be Apple. It's going to be on iPad and uh, and iPhones, and then the next phase of the development is going to be putting it on Droid phones. So you know, don't worry, Droid uh, phone lovers, <laughs> you're going to get it too. So it's uh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, go ahead.
2: I was going to ask how long the Droid people have to wait.
3: Well, we're hoping by the beginning of next year, um, we need at least uh four or five months to develop it. Um but the coding right now the hardest part was actually pre development. <laughs> the longest. Um so I think a lot of that time will be cut off once we get uh into the Droid app uh development. So uh, awesome. it's literally just translating the code uh over to um the droid OS operating system. So it's,
2: awesome. it shouldn't be luckily I have an iPhone so I can get it quick.
3: Yeah, there you
2: go. <laughs> Actually, I went to look for it earlier, and I couldn't get the beta, unfortunately. I couldn't find it. So. Yeah, it
3: should be up. Uh, beta should be up there. It's going to be a full version that's on there, but it's, again, like I said, I'd wait. Uh, November 1st is when we're going to have the, the nice, glossy version out, and uh, we uh, it should be in good shape and uh, ready to roll on November 1st.
2: Awesome. Well, I'm excited about that. That's really cool. So this is pretty exciting and you know, people can go to ufoconnect.com and look at what the app's going to look like because it's really good looking too.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We we spent a lot of time on the artwork. We, uh, really tried to uh, get the feeling I designed the logo kind of a, uh, the circle within the circle with a little satellite around it. Um, yeah. Very cool. And, uh, you know, it kind of gives everybody kind of an icon to say that's UFO connect. I know what that is. And, uh, hopefully over many years, more support grows. And, you know, we, we try to do that through a lot of social media. So we have a Facebook uh, page. So if you guys could get on there and support us also on Twitter and whatnot and give us feedback, We listen to everybody. And trust me, we, we we shoot that stuff directly to the programmers and, and we really uh, try to make it, you know, an app for everybody. We want everybody to like this and, and to be able to use it.
2: Yeah. So UFOConnect.com is where people can go on look at all the different types of the apps you talked about. You have a lot of the of, of screenshots of what it'll look like. And then of course they can get to your Twitter and the Facebook for UFO Connect there. But UFO Connect dot com. Yeah, that's it. It's real simple. So and how did it start? I mean did you whose idea and did you did you go to like move on and say, Hey, I want to do this and they they were like, sweet.
3: Well it was kinda of like um you know friend were sitting there, three of us, me, John, and and Jeff, uh, sitting at dinner, and we were like, you know, contemplating. He he just joined. I I, I forced him (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. to join and become a uh, field investigator. And, of course, my friend John was like, nah, I'll just get the magazine. (laughs) It'll work (laughs) for me. And we're just trying to think, and we were, you know, we were talking about markets and what's been active in technology, and we said apps, and then we said, what about it And you know Jeffrey's actually the first one that kind of initiated the discussion, and he said, "What about a you know what about a uFO app you know one where you can search around and see what's landed in in your area you know that kind of thing and uh, and then we just went from there it snowballed and i I started to come up. I actually came up with the idea of Skywatch a few years earlier. I just didn't have a platform. I was actually thinking of making an alert system based off of the Amber alert system uh-huh. and I actually went into uh phone conversations. With Cisco Systems and other people to try to kind of figure out how it works. And, um, I, I, I did a whole, um, financial, uh, kind of research on it, found out how much it cost, and whoa, <laughs> talk about money. Uh, you know, it, up, upwards to about 120 to even, um, wow, uh, $500,000 worth of work that it took to actually put together a lot of the Amber Alert systems and how that actually works. But then, all of a sudden, the smartphones came out, right? <laughs> and and apps started coming out, and I was like, hey, I can cut a really, really, really big corner, and actually, it will work better. <laughs> yeah. You know, no one uses beepers anymore, and no one likes getting phone calls. So, I think, you know, the, the phone idea with the apps will actually apply to this Amber Alert. And I also kind of poured it into the history of Skywatch, Operation Skywatch, which is a a program that actually ended in 1969, um, you know, when they started to to invent and use radar, (laughs) where uh, citizens volunteered to go out and spot aircraft for the Air Force uh, during during the war and um, during World War II. And they would go out all over the nation, Canada, Alaska, and they would just, they would always, you know, they would be out in towers, literally, um, and spotting aircraft and radioing it into some sort of headquarters. So it's kind of those two items kind of uh, meshed together to create this Skywatch alert system that we built within the app. Cool. Yeah.
2: Cool. That's exciting. That's very cool. So, yeah, that's November 1st. That's not too far away.
3: No, not at all. It's almost there. I'm I'm excited.
2: Yep. And, I mean, already it's surprising to think that the holidays are on their way. Yeah, I know.
3: Yeah, people can buy, you know, little Christmas cards and get, you know, a little, uh, I guess, like
2: the iTunes card. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, so that everybody can get the app. And what's exciting, you know, looking at the screenshots and everything, it definitely looks like an app that is built by um, – It's. it looks smart. It looks very useful. Um, other apps in this field, uh, I won't mention names, but – Sometimes aren't, you know, they're just kind of informational and more marketing, where this is really something that can be used and utilized.
3: Yeah, and that's the whole intent. And uh, there's so much more we can do to it as far as making it better, enhancing it, giving it more um, attributes, you know, over time. I've already talked to a few of the programmers right now, within MUFON and they're thinking of all these new ideas to um you know to possibly add to it. And also one of the things part of our web development, we're even thinking of putting it on for subscribers, you know, who subscribe to MUFON to be able to use the app on their PCs, on their Macs and their PCs. So they can literally log in as a subscriber and just go right to it and put it up on their screen and leave it on their computer all day long. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they want it to So there's cool. all sorts of applications to it.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to get it, man. Less than 10 bucks for the whole thing, that's awesome. No problem. And uh, that's what's cool about apps, you know. It's just a one-time fee. It's not monthly or anything. Right. Well, cool. I'm glad we got to talk about that because I'm really excited about it. Um, we're, of course, social networkers and, and techie dudes here, so we get <laughs> real excited about all of this kind of stuff. And it was fun to meet you in California at the symposium. Oh, and, yeah. You know, we got really excited to hear all about that.
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be a definite adventure. Uh, you know, a big game changer. I think it's going to to really give a different perspective for the general public and the serious enthusiasts. Uh, a, a, a definitely useful tool, a new look at at this phenomenon, and I think it'll it'll literally turn viral. It'll get people really involved, and I think we're going to see a lot more witnesses to the phenomena.
2: Yeah which is great. It'll change all the numbers, which is uh, I'm working this week on some stories using MUFON data on uh, different types of like where hotspots are, different types of things and some interesting stuff I found crunching the numbers. So oh, yeah. this will all change once your app yeah. comes out and yeah. there's a lot more settings, yeah, which I'll is keep... great. It'll become more accurate, I think. Yeah. And it'll,
3: it'll probably skew the data a little bit from this point
2: on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Things will change, which is great. gets better yeah. all the time. Um, okay, well, next, I wanted to talk about you know you had mentioned you were on the star team and everything, and I know there's a case that this you know gigantic um report that you had sent me uh that we can get into, but I wanted to ask uh before that uh is this your best star case, or what was one of the coolest cases you got to work on that really really an eye opener
3: yeah, this this was actually a really good one. Um, you know, I get a lot of good cases when I get you know dialogue from our um, witnesses, and, I, and it's great. But this is the first one that I've ever, you know, I you know of course you always got in the back of your head, is this really real? <laughs> you know, is this yeah really happening. And 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 you know you you're always questioning yourself, especially myself as being you know kind of a, a daytime scientist, I guess, uh, constantly you know looking at things objectively and. And trying to check myself, but in this case, this is probably the most interesting case I've dealt with um i mean, there's been plenty uh trust me, and there's been rot you know roller coaster cases too I mean I've had some horrible nightmare cases uh you know and not mentioning names, but you know people that were literally uh insane but dealing with this case, this guy was straightforward. Uh, you know, he was a police officer at the time, he still is, uh, and his wife was uh, active duty still, so they wow. really couldn't discuss what she does. I mean, she. It, 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 so there was a lot of credibility there with, with the witnesses. Um, the story never really changed, you know, which was good. We did a lot of checks and you know. With the the photographs that we got from the case, it was the first most close-up photograph of this type of object that I've seen, and I've seen reports about these types of objects. Wow! I guess some people call them, you know, football shape or, you know, uh, a teardrop. They'll call them teardrop, or they'll call them uh, like a upright silk cigar shape. Um, but in this case, they, they got a really close photograph of it, the best that they could, and we, I mean, we raked through those, those photos, looking at all the data. We gave it to uh, a couple of specialists to really go through and, and scrutinize. And we got good feedback. We got good scrutinization. You know, there was a lot of, you know, hey, this is how you would fake it. Uh, you know, this is how you would do this, which is what we're our, part of our process is. We really want to know everything about those photos we possibly can and look at it objectively. Um, you know, this case is, is, was kind of crazy because um, it started out back in '08. He actually made a report to MUFON when his family had a reunion at his house, and they all witnessed this strange uh, point of light moving erratically around the sky very quickly. And this is in Miami-Dade uh, and Florida. And so that you know was reported. I think it was Mary Margaret uh, that took the case uh, a while back, and there was another investigator that was on it. Um, and uh, and then we received um, another report from him the recent recently. Uh, which was here in, in 2011 and it was about this sphere that he saw take off from his backyard. Uh he came out it was it was he reported this for a reason and I'll get to that in a second cuz kind of give you a, a, a an order of how things occurred. Mm-hmm. So we get this star team. It was a star team deployment right away. Uh so we we you know literally the day ends at work, I'm at home, I stuff everything in my trunk of my truck or the, the bed of my truck, and I'm off uh, to Miami. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going across the Alligator Alley, which is this long road that goes across from the west coast of Florida to the east coast of Florida. So I get over there in time, and we get out of there. We have about an hour until the light, you know, because we lose light. So immediately we go to the site, and I'm looking for this giant, you know, hole in the ground or some round <laughs> circle, you know, and it's this little dinky, uh, six inch, two six inch type, uh, uh, divots, uh, kind of burn marks, um, in the, in the grass. And, um, you know, one has like an ashy white color to it, um, really strange. It was like an ash, like, and it, even, even some of the grass wasn't really burnt. It was, it was, it was just white, like the, uh, starches turned due to heat. Um, it was still, it was still supple or, Uh, soft to the touch and we did test it for radiation (laughs) so i didn't go you know sniffing around without checking for safety issues yeah but um and um and then the other one was just scorched black it was the top part of the grass was really burned out so it was odd to have two different markings like that but his description of this object was this larger than a basketball sphere with no seams Uh, taking off very quickly. As soon as he came out the back door, he was letting his dogs out. His dogs were going crazy. He got home in the late evening around 6 p.m., 6.30, and um, his dogs went uh, straight for this fence that he has up, and the fence has, like, one of those, like, little uh, guards that you can't see through, you know, like the mesh that you put on the Uh fence. And so he didn't, you know, he didn't know what they were barking on. And as soon as they got to the fence, this thing takes off. It goes straight up and he sees like a temperature inversion or like a wavy, you know, heat signature coming off the bottom of this craft as it's moving mm-hmm. up. And, um, it's kind of glowing red, he said, but he could tell it was silver, but it was glowing. He said, it's hard to explain. He said, and it, it went straight up and, uh, made a 90 degree turn to the South very quickly. And, um, he said that's what really, you know, took him uh by surprise was how quick it went and how fast it turned. It was just not conventional. And um but he, he when we went inside for the interview, so we went outside, did all our, our sampling, we collected samples and everything and uh <clears throat> we went inside and I again I'm I it's not much to me because I do it as per a job but I just saying collect samples meaning I went in and I actually did um a few auger holes uh, with uh, some soil auger, took some soil samples, took some vegetation samples, uh, both control samples and the con- uh, samples within the uh, the mark areas. Sample, sample, sample. That's all I did. I took many, many samples and I, mm-hmm. I have archive samples and, and samples I send to their lab and everything like that. So I did that. uh, took photos, everything like that, measurements. So we went inside to do the interview and he's like, well, I, there's something else I need to tell you. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> I said, well, what it, well, we really didn't want to put it in the report because, you know, we were afraid you guys would think are crazy. And I'm like, OK, well, you know, hey, trust me, I've, I've heard crazy before. I'm OK. <laughs> so he, we got real comfortable with one another when we were talking. And Mary Margaret was there with me, um, our assistant state director of Florida. And, um, and he started telling us about this event that occurred um, a few months prior. And I said, okay. Well, what happened? And he said, well, uh, this, ob- this red object um, was in my front yard. And and he said, I said, I think, Well, what do you mean th- in your front yard? He's like, well, I walked out into the front yard. This is around 11. I think it was 11 p.m. at night. He was going out to the car for something, and um, he. Uh, came face-to-face face with this red object right in his front yard, probably about 30, 40 feet away, probably 30 feet. It was a little close. And he he kind of was stunned, you know, that deer in headlights type thing. And he starts yelling for his wife. And his mother, after he's yelling for his wife, his door was partially opened. And um, as he was yelling for his wife, you know, his mother saw the same thing. And she was, like, kind of panic-stricken according to him. And his wife comes out, he's like yelling at her, get the camera, get the camera. And he gets the she gets the camera and comes out and starts snapping a few photos. And she was able to get a few uh, still shots. Um, You know, they're smeared in most of the um, photos because it was low light. She was trying to take it without flash and then she turned the flash on. So there's all sorts of modes that we described in the report that -hmm. she did, how many seconds between each photograph, and there was a few shots where she was able to hold it steady for a long enough time to get a really solid look at the object. And by far, me, I haven't seen anything that close of this object ever. And um, and it's it looks literally kind of like a translucent crystal glass, you know, very bright red object. Uh, his description when he was there in person, because camera shots, video, and everything can give you a different perspective of what actually people are seeing, because they're not like a human eye. But when they were looking at it, their description was, was that it was bright, so bright that they would leave streaks, like if you were looking at the sun, you know, when you, or a bright light at night, it would, it would leave sort of like a streak. Well, he said that it would pulsate, and it would, it would sit there very bright, and it would be doing that the whole time, so... And um, they watched it. The the wife taking photos would actually approach it, and um, she tried to get closer, and it moved away from him. And it did this about three times, and it would abruptly move uh, horizontal and still kind of stir and and kind of do this irregular flashing, as he called it. And when it got over the road and went over to the neighbors or across the street, right into the front porch of their right over the you know the seam of the road. And as she stepped onto the road to walk towards it, it shot straight up and out of sight and they don't they just went straight up and kept going until it disappeared and they said it moves quickly and that's what really startled them just how fast it moved and um you know and, and that's that's that they had the photos they had their testimony they talked to us about it uh we went into a few other stories about you know items about them we were just trying to get a characterization of our witnesses and everything like that so it turned out the way that that report turned out it's pretty much everything's in there. And it, it and it you know, we, we still don't know what it is. We contemplated what it may have been. Um, you know, there was I mean, theories all over the place. Um what the red object is, uh, you know, what it's made of, is it man made? Was it faked and how would they fake it? You know, we looked at everything, but we concluded that, you know, the, the witness testimony was was genuine. They were very honest with us. Uh, they're, they're credible. So, you know, you have to look at it in that respects too, because it's sort of a mm-hmm. forensics, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't hate to compare it to homicide investigation, but you have to depend a lot on witness testimony sometimes to right. to the facts in a case. And so, you know, that's what we have to do in these instances. It's not perfect for, we know that yeah. But it, it, it's, it's something there's substance there. And, uh, we really believe that there was substance in this case. And, uh, it was just so very intriguing. Uh, and the fact that they have these new sightings. And, of course, after that, you know, about a month later, you know, they get this sphere in their backyard. <laughs> now, these spheres I've I've had reports of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one place in particular, which is, you know, kind of telling, is both Iraq and Afghanistan. Hmm. And a lot of people have been reporting from those areas, reporting these exact objects.
2: Yeah. Uh, now, the sphere... And- Picture that you're talking about, the one where it was in their front yard. That's the one yeah. where it's by the palm tree.
3: Uh, the, the the artist rendition. The I picture. Did. Yeah, the, the sphere.
2: The real picture. Oh, the,
3: the real, the red picture. Yes, that was yeah. in front. Yes, that is in their front yard. They have two palm trees in their front yard. We were gotcha. able to uh, estimate a few distances and how the object moved and what little movement it did um, yeah. during that photo stream. But yeah, it's it's. It was uh, right up in front, so you get an idea of how dark and what, what's in the area and how light affects with the camera and everything. And we used, yeah, it's like, pretty
2: it, cool. And, and then, you guys, I saw your analysis with the uh, red laser to see what was similar. And, of course, if you reflect the laser off of something, it's kind of similar. But what's weird is with her pictures, like you said, it's, it's in the front yard next to this palm tree. There really doesn't look to be anything it could reflect off of.
3: Right. And, yeah, we kind of were looking at everything and, and that was Mark's, uh, Mark D'Antonio's, uh, analysis. I think you've talked to him on your show before,
2: but, uh, Oh yeah. A couple of times.
3: Yeah. He's a really good guy. And, mm-hmm. um, and then we also had, um, an investigator, uh, from our, our state, uh, also looked at it uh, and looked at it and more of a analytical, uh, analysis and, uh, kind of gave a good idea. And there's so much more he could have done. <laughs> I gave him yeah. like a month or so to do it, but, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's it's a lot of work that went into this yeah. report uh and you know we're we're trying to emulate that in a lot of the big cases now with um with star team and uh even if they are cases that are explainable like let's say the missouri case totally explainable great let's write a report about it let's get it published and show people that process right but what we actually do in the field and and i think people will gain that respect and understanding of what we do
2: yeah exactly and um that's the hard part with photographs like you said because mm-hmm. really, even if you determine the photograph, it doesn't appear to be hoax. There's no, even with an analyst thing, you know, there, it doesn't yeah. appear to be hoax. You never know for sure, and you have to rely on the witness testimony. And like you said, that's not 100%. But sure, no. at least it is uh, definitely, um, it gives you something.
3: Yeah, yeah it's, it certainly is. And uh, it, 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 it's, 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 it's. It's substance. There's something to this case. Um, you know, again, later on, they had um, the object show up once more or twice more, actually. He saw it far off in the distance, but the 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 right the instant, I think that happened about a month or so after we talked to him, uh, it was on his roof. <laughs> he wow. came out the front door and he turned around and he saw the red light, you know, the glowing in, in the yard. He's like, oh, where is it? You know, he's looking all over the place for it. And he turns around and it's right above his house, uh, right, wow. above, literally feet with, from his uh, roof. And uh, he kind of panicked and kind of like looked at it. And as soon as he looked at it, the thing took off. And uh, I, you know, who knows what it is? It, it yeah. is so strange. And you um, know, and I've had other reports. I mean, we've had Boca Raton, uh, similar area just north of there. We've had the same thing kind of show up there. This upright, uh, you know, shape in the think that's intriguing about it it's all primary color like uh, laser like color like uh, greens mm-hmm. blues and reds wow. and um and and it's the same size, shape it's the same shape and and what it what the technology is and what the possibilities of it is it's just you know it's it's very hard to to pinpoint it it's, yeah it's,
2: how it's weird now um yeah. we'll post these just so the listeners know uh, I'll put the pictures on our YouTube and our Ustream stream that we have uh when we do the show. And also sure. if I write a story, can I let people download the uh report?
3: Yeah, that shouldn't be a problem. I guess you great. know like procedures, we I always have to get permission, so I don't think that'll be a problem, but um I can always I can always do that. Yeah.
2: Okay, great. We'll, we'll yeah, let up. me know and then uh you know when uh, soon after uh people hear this we'll allow them to uh look at it. Because, like you oh, said, absolutely. it's important to show the work, uh, yeah, it so is. people know that you you did go through that you're not just you know arbitrarily declaring this as something strange that you did a lot of work to verify uh, right. and a lot of uh,
3: yeah uh, we're, not, we're not calling and we're not calling it you know we're not saying it's extraterrestrial we're not saying it's man made we're not saying it's yeah. a hoax we're just saying this is a mystery we don't know what it is yeah. we know a few facts about it but. And that's what's intriguing. We did learn a little bit, um, but you know this isn't like a smoking gun. Definitely makes you think. I mean, it's a it's a it's it's something that really puts some thought into what's really out there. You know, it, it, yeah. it, it, it,
2: it's strange. Is there something it's, weird you found? Anything weird you found with the soil?
3: No. It, what we found, though, obviously in Florida, um, we fertilize our yards a lot, <laughs>
2: and,
3: uh-huh. and so we found a lot of that. We found a lot of the, uh, the um, you know, the, the fertilizer type indicators uh, that were in the soils. There was nothing, there was no crystallization because of the heat, uh, certain physical effects to the soil. Most of the heat, from my observation in the field, uh, most of the effects occurred at the top portion of the grass. So it was a heat source from above, mm. and it, and it didn't go all the way down. So this thing wasn't touching the ground. It must have been above the surface and the heat generated from this object burned in that area. And it looked like it may have bobbed or moved a little bit while it was very close to the ground because uh, it may have just transferred over a little bit, and that's how it kind of got these two spots. It could have been, you know, as it just kind of bobbled around whatever it was doing down near the ground. So it, it's just a very strange effect that it had on the area. I mean, it was just heat, and the lab analysis you know, pretty much confirm that, yeah, this is burned grass.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: And, uh, but that's it. I think that's all that the only physical effect that was probably left behind was the heat, um, you know, effects to the, to the vegetation. Oh, uh, that's pretty and, weird. uh, yeah, so it's, so it left no trace of, uh, no fuel emissions, no, you know, no, hmm. nothing. When we tested, we did a gas, gas chromatograph, uh, Sort of thing, uh, and uh, we uh, were able to determine that you know there was nothing unusual, other than that the grass was burned, uh, and uh, there's no real spikes or of any sort of mystery substance, I guess, or any foreign substance or any foreign effects. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they did everything else that we did in the field. They repeated too. They did radiation. They did everything back, and uh, really nothing came up other than the fact that yes, they confirmed that the, the grass was burned. So. We'll be uh, portions of the ashy, with literally burnt vegetation material. So it must have been very hot uh, <laughs> at that point. So you know that's what, yeah. that's what we came up with.
2: But and I was just thinking, you can clearly tell that they're not Chinese lanterns because, of course, the red <laughs> yeah. orbs keep getting blown off as Chinese lanterns these days.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, and, and you know, and we do, and we, we, and, the, and it's such a sponge too because we actually have organizations now, you know, these little social groups. Now they'd go out and purposely take UFO sightings. <laughs> so it's yeah. Like, we really got to be careful about it. I know those guys in New York got really pulled through the ringer with these guys that were uh, launching tons of these balloons with flares on them. And yeah. So it, it's hard to tell the difference. They they look at distance. It's it's hard to tell the difference unless you've actually yeah. up, uh, and seen it move and maneuver and say, yep, that's something unusual. Yeah. So some floats across the sky and sits there and dangles and, it's, yeah, it's recently so-
2: I took some video of uh, of military flares over the Goldwater range, uh-huh. and I mean, they look weird. They're so dang bright, and oh, yeah. they're a strange color, and if yeah, I right. just sent a clip to MUFON and made up some story that they zoomed yeah. off into the sky after I stopped recording, sure. it'd be hard for someone to tell.
3: Yeah, it really would. It- it's easy, like I say to people, it is easy to fake UFO sightings. You can have the most extraordinary sighting of a giant object in the sky, and it's real. Now, you can have somebody that's good at special effects or just constructive can yeah. replicate right. that. You know, because we're, as human beings, we're very artistic. We're very ingenuous, and we can actually make that sighting, just like that triangle with the guy that made all the moving lasers and lights on it. Yeah. That
2: Right? <laughs> oh, that whole so, thing looks incredible. Yeah, I think it was yeah. even an Irish guy, wasn't it? And uh, Yeah, he made this triangle with the laser coming out of it. That was awesome.
3: Yeah, it looks I mean, so real. It does. And so it, it's our um, job as investigators to really pour through. And that's what people say, well, why do you call it insufficient data? Or, or, or you know, when somebody doesn't get it, why do you just ignore the case? Well, unfortunately, because of the fakery and because of the ingenuity of people, we have to say we require a witness in order to continue with the case. Now we can present it to the public, and say, here it is. But there's no witness. Uh, sort of like the the um, uh, what were the uh, the drones in California? You know, no right. witness. These wonderful pictures show up out of nowhere, and there's no witness. Yeah. And so it, it it's hard. You know, of course they somebody eventually chased this you know this individual down, and and then no comment, no comment, and they figured out that it was probably yeah. him. But again, that's kind of what we run into. So instead of getting burned on something and we just assume that it's from a real thing, we have to require a witness, and yeah.
2: uh,
3: it's part of it.
2: Now, we're almost out of time, but I did want to get to uh, this other case that you uh, had sent me uh, an audio that we could listen to, uh, sure. a witness who saw some uh, a spear at Cape Canaveral in the 60s. Yeah,
3: yeah, 64, Um He's a retired Air Force pilot. Um, he was not an Air Force pilot. I think he may have been, but he wasn't an Air Force pilot during that time. Um, but he was obviously in the Air Force, I believe. And he was out on a date uh, on Cape Beach, is what they call it, which was a sort of a a uh, intercoastal beach near on the northern side of Cape Canaveral. So there was a beach out there, and there was. He said, "There's roughly three to four hundred people out there," and. Um, you know, on the beach, dogs, kids running around, uh, you know, a hot dog stand guy with his little tra- trailer with hot dogs. You know, you're trying to think of a typical 1964 day on a beach, you know, <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this, this this strange object, this ball bearing like sphere pops straight down out of the sky, right over the kind of like where the water meets the, the beach and just it sits there. And it has like these, there be rings like a gyroscope around it that are kind of rotating around it in, in different directions. So like kind of like like rings that are kind of like not touching the sphere but just hanging out. And they had one had yellow lights in it or yellow lighting of some sort. The other one had I think I think you said greener greener red. And they would just it would just sit there. In broad daylight. <laughs> and cool. And and everybody just stops and looks at this thing. The whole beach it just stops. And then a few moments later, they just, and you can let the, the recording speak for itself, but they just walk off the beach like nothing happened. Like, there's nothing going on. You said they just walk off the beach, like, in not a panic. They just get out of there. They just all leave it's after weird. this thing
4: takes off. So, yeah,
3: you can really hear the inflection in his voice. You can really hear the sincerity from him. He, he remembers it like it was yesterday.
4: Well, uh, we had gotten to the beach, and... We got out, and we went up over sand dunes and down onto the beach, and she and I had turned and started walking uh, west, and there was, I guess, two or 300 people there on that little uh, stretch of beach, and all of a sudden, it got quiet, and she and I turned around, and everybody was standing there looking up, and we looked up thing i I say about four or five hundred feet in the air this thing reminded me of the uh, it reminded me of the uh, like a uh a steel a ball a steel ball Okay, like it, it was real shiny mm-hmm. and it had
3: The the Uh, ring did, the ring did, right? Is that what you're saying?
4: Just everybody on that beach all of a sudden picked up and packed up their stuff, not saying a word. Just walked
3: up over the dunes, out of the cars in the parking lot, got in the cars and started going home. Hmm. And, and I
4: never saw anything in the paper about
3: it. And did the seem did the people seem alarmed at all or And, I
4: mean, it was like everybody was mesmerized.
3: Right. That's that's strange. Yeah.
4: Or.
3: Again? I, I, that this must... was about
4: 1964. Okay. And uh, like I said, uh, I, I uh, read the newspapers and watched the uh, local TV uh, stations and everything for about a week or two. And there was never a word printed or a word uh, reported on it.
3: Wow. Well, yeah, and that, 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 that's not uncommon either because we get a lot of sightings where people just don't report them. Yeah, um. pretty good details I mean obviously it wasn't the sun or anything like that it,
4: well, well you've you seen those uh, round steel uh, uh, and I don't what they're like marbles, but they're, they're
3: yeah bearings like a steel bearing,
4: bearing yeah, like a steel bearing and I thought I could see through the thing when I was first looking at it but it it wasn't that I could see blue sky through the t- two rings it was the surface
0: of this thing was so reflective, it was reflecting the blue sky off of the surface. Right.
4: And uh, on the on the bottom side, uh, you could tell it was like a steel bearing.
3: Wow. And how how big do you think it was? Can you can? It,
4: well, at the.
3: I mean, was it like at arm's length if you were to hold out a known object like a quarter or. A uh, tennis ball or something how how big was it comparative if you if you were to hold uh, it? at arm's, arm's length that yeah, yeah. would have
4: been about I'd say about the size of a, a tennis ball. Okay. And uh this thing was uh, this thing uh I I'd venture to say the thing wasn't over uh fifteen hundred feet up in in the air. Okay. And it was at an angle.
3: Right. And, and I'm sorry, you were—I cut you off before. But wh- wh- where did you say you saw this? What beach was that? It, it
4: was just a little. Uh, it was. I think it was an inlet. Uh, more or less, it wasn't a beach actually. It was an inlet waterway that had a, a little beach front on it. So I think it's what they call the Indian River or
3: Banana River. Okay.
4: And it was just north of the cape.
3: Okay, and the Cape is, uh, are you talking about the east coast of Florida Cape, or? Uh,
4: yeah, they used to call it uh, Cape Canaveral. Okay,
3: yeah. It, and um, I guess the weather was normal and, and nothing?
4: Uh, yeah, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, um, and it, it it was nice and sunny
3: and warm. And what time do you think it was during the day? Uh,
4: this was around, uh, I'd say, 1 o'clock or shortly after in in the afternoon.
3: Okay. And do you know if any of the, wit- or the other witnesses are still around or con- contactable about the event? Oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure the, they're still around or scattered because,
4: uh, uh, like I said, there was at least 200 uh, 200- Yeah. And uh, you could hear them going, but it got quiet. I mean, it got real quiet, and that's the reason we turned around. Everything went quiet all of a sudden. And,
3: and, I mean, do you remember what the reaction of the people were? I mean, were they all standing very still, or were they reacting? Were they pointing at it? Um, Were they doing anything like that?
4: No, it was just like they Well, I I was doing the same thing, and uh, we were standing there just looking up. (laughs) Huh. <laughs>
3: near the water and this is Florida being did you notice any yeah. seagulls or any any other wildlife flying around like they usually
4: do no the thing about there, there was, that was the only thing in, in,
0: in the sky okay.
4: that I noticed because uh, it was I don't know it, it was just like somebody had hung it there
3: I stumbled upon him he was another he was the father of a, another witness so This guy, he saw a strange light when he was at work at night, and then he says, oh, by the way, my father had something that happened to him back in
4: 1964.
3: I start talking to him, and he became a new case, and so it was really interesting to hear that. I love the historical cases. They're always fun to uh, research and find out, and if anybody in your listening audience knows anybody that may have had the same thing happen during 1964 on Cape Beach is what he called it, um, right off the coast, uh, there in the intercoastal beach near Cape Canaveral in 1964 in the summer. I think, um, hey, let us know because we only have one
2: witness right now.
3: If we get a couple more witnesses, it, it'll become a much more solid case and it would be really interesting to see what other people interpret it.
2: All right, great. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much. And I wanted to mention, too, because we talked about UFO Stalker. That's just ufostalker.com where there's a map and the sightings uh, pop up on the map, which is kind of cool. If you haven't seen that, we've talked about it on the show before. You'll want to check that out. But even cooler, you're going to have this kind of similar thing, but even more robust and better on your mobile phone called UFO Connect, and that's at ufoconnect.com. And thank you so much for coming and telling us about it, Morgan.
3: Not a problem. It's always a pleasure, and I love listening to your
2: show. So it's always Oh, cool. A awesome. Yeah, the time flies, huh? Yeah. It does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like we just started, and we had—I was thinking—you know—we've uh, got uh, an hour to talk about this stuff, and it went by in no time, and we probably could have gone on more.
3: Oh yeah, I've got so many other things. And
2: well, we'll have you on then again uh, to talk about more later. Thanks for coming on.
3: Absolutely, thank you, and I, I really enjoyed it.
2: And thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to tune in next week for another amazing show with Open Minds Radio. And check out openminds.tv for those cool stories that I talked about. Talk to you later, people.